Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSightNews.com. Well, we have some very uh, interesting interviews coming up for you over the next couple of weeks, but today I wanted to do something a little bit different because one of the most frequently asked questions I get when we're talking about all the various aspects of the culture wars, most of which I examine here on this show by talking to various you know, artists, authors, experts, academics, is how did we get here? How did we go from societies based on Judeo-Christian values with a generally understood recognition of, of what the natural family looked like, what natural sexuality looked like, to a society founded almost entirely on sexual liberation, or more accurately, sexual revolution? How did we go from a society based on revelation, God's revealed word, his inspired word, the Bible, but also natural law, the the created order as we understand it, to, to revolution, a total overthrow of all previous rules and a total overthrow of all previous values. And it's interesting because this is this, this revolution is often not particularly remarked upon, and I've found that many people have, have a very scanty understanding of how we went from that sort of a society to the society we currently live in. We're headed into... Uh, what's now internationally known as Pride Month, which means we're going to see basically every major corporation and government building wrap themselves in the rainbow flag. And it's kind of ironic. People outdo themselves so thoroughly now to ensure that they're on the right side of a revolution that is still extremely new, historically speaking, that I saw on social media the other day. There's actually a fellow who painted his entire house, his entire house he painted, as the pride flag, and the first comment underneath was from somebody who let him know that his pride flag was missing the transgender triangle part of the flag. In other words, nothing will ever be good enough. And so I want to take uh, just this podcast just to provide some context to the many discussions that we've been having and take a look at the history of the sexual revolution. Now, obviously, this is an extremely complex topic. Uh, the sexual revolution can be examined from any number of different angles. But what I want to do is just provide what I hope will be a, a helpful chronology, a basic outline of the sexual revolution and the key founders of the sexual revolution. Uh, let the listener beware that obviously of the figures that I'm going to discuss on this show, there are many, many other people that I could have chosen uh, of all the different aspects and events that I'm referring to. Obviously, there could be many, many more of those as well. But what I'd like to do for those uh, of you who are unaware of this history or just want a brief and hopefully helpful outline, what I want to do is basically give you a chronology that will provide a simplistic understanding of how we got from there to here. So I want to start by defining what the sexual revolution is, not using my own definition, but using an agreed-upon definition by historians. And so the sexual revolution, which is also known as a time of quote-unquote sexual liberation, was a social movement that challenged traditional codes of behavior related to sexuality and interpersonal relationships throughout the Western world from the 1960s to the 1980s. In short, this is a period in history when we almost entirely exchanged one set of values from the other, and nothing has ever been the same since. Essentially, over a period of two decades, all traditional restrictions on sexuality were tossed, and we went from a society based on the Judeo-Christian ethic regarding sexuality to one that prizes so-called sexual liberty above all else. 
We'll get into the details of what took place between the 60s and the 80s, but I think it's just really important for us to understand that most people in Western culture today, that's Canada, the United States, the UK, they haven't actually ever rejected the Christian understanding of sexuality insofar as that they do not know what the Christian view of sexuality is. When the Christian view of sexuality is discussed now in the media, it's almost entirely when some Christian institution has been targeted by LGBT activists for being intolerant, for being hateful. But almost nobody actually understands what Christians teach about sexuality, what the Bible actually teaches about sexuality. And that's because we are now several generations into our post-Christian moment. The West has not been Christian for a very long time. And thus, many people do not even know the founding stories of the scriptures. Many people don't understand anything about Christian doctrine except what they're told by those who are attempting to mischaracterize and abuse it. And this is something that I discovered when I joined the pro-life movement, is when I was talking to people out on the streets, on the campuses, at high schools, it wasn't that these people had ever carefully considered the claims made by Christianity and rejected them. By and large, most of them had never heard these claims to begin with. And so our society has not only been shaped by the sexual revolution, but most of those in our society today never explicitly rejected Christianity so much as grew up in a culture that had been shaped by revolution and not by revelation. You'll find this if you if you go to university as well. The new way of living uh, is, is now simply the norm. And those who remember life before the sexual revolution are increasingly taking their places one by one in the cemeteries. There are those of us like myself who are privileged to live and to grow up in communities where the natural family was still celebrated, where it was still predominant, where it was still at the center of the culture. But increasingly, this is not the case for other people. I want to start by going back to a scientist and anthropologist named Margaret Mead. Now, some of you may recognize her name. I always find it interesting, actually, because uh, Margaret Mead has a because she wrote for so many years has a lot of great quotes, and people often use these quotes by her without knowing who she actually was. Because actually, if if you were looking at the history of Western civilization, Margaret Mead was actually quite a a sinister uh, figure, and I call her the mother of the sexual revolution. Now, in the 1920s, together with an, another young scholar named Ruth Benedict, Mead set off to research the indigenous people of Samoa. And she spent nine months there uh, with Ruth Benedict. And as a result of their time there, Margaret Mead published a 1928 book called Coming of Age in Samoa. Now, this book had a tremendous impact because the basic understanding of natural law at that time is that uh, we can understand reality, fundamental reality in two ways. First, of course, we have revelation, which is God's inspired word, but we also have uh, what we can learn from God's created order, the way that he created things to be. We can learn about God from scripture. We can also learn about God uh, through nature. And thus, the Ten Commandments, to give you one example, was is not just a list of restrictions that people must abide by. It is also a reflection of how God created the world, and thus, it is also essentially advice for how to live your best life. So, for example, the restrictions on sexuality placed uh, by God and elucidated in Scripture tell us the best way to enjoy this gift that He has given us. And when He explicitly lays out the boundaries, which is inside a monogamous marriage, a monogamous lifelong marriage, 
uh, we understand that this is not simply because the, the, the restrictions are there uh, in order to make our lives miserable, but these restrictions are there because the God who created sexuality knows and understands, of course, how it is to be best enjoyed. So there is commands, yes, and we can violate those commands, but the commands that we are given are also a reflection of what is best for us. Now, what Margaret Mead's book, Coming of Age in Samoa, revealed is that there were other ways to live that could be better. She described this idyllic island Eden in which people lived in almost utopian harmony with very little competition with one another and, most importantly, no draconian moral codes restricting people's sexual behavior. Rather, Mead wrote, teenage Samoans had many sexual partners and were encouraged to engage in this free love South Seas hookup culture. As Margaret Mead wrote in her book, admiringly, a young Samoan girl, quote, thrusts virtuosity away from her, all of her interest is expended on clandestine sexual adventures. In other words, Christian morality and natural law were nothing more than a hoax or a dangerous social construct. And the impact of this book really cannot be underestimated, even though many of you may have never heard of it before. According to one historian, quote, this would prove the most highly circulated anthropological book ever written. It became required reading for all first-year anthropology courses and played a key role in shaping sex education, criminal law, government social policies, and the popular view of acceptable sexual conduct. In other words, this book changed everything. As John Horgan put it in Scientific American, Mead's book, quote, posed a challenge to Western sexual morals, which, according to Mead, inflicted needless suffering on young men and women. The theme of coming of age in all of Mead's subsequent work was that the way things are is not the way they must or should be. We can choose to live in ways that make us happier and healthier. Mead's writings helped inspire feminism, the sexual revolution, and other countercultural trends during the 1960s. It's mind-boggling in retrospect to look at this body of scholarly work and recognize that almost none of it was true. So there's a couple of important things to point out here. Uh, first of all, we know a lot more about Margaret Mead now than, of course, they did at the time. And Margaret Mead was doing what I call backfilling. She was already persuaded that the Christian moral ethic surrounding sexuality was dangerous and damaging because she was not living that life herself. And in fact, it was later revealed that the thrice married Margaret Mead was in a relationship with Ruth Benedict and she had many sexual relationships with other women. And when she left for Samoa in 1926, she actually told her then husband, I'll not leave you unless I find someone I love more, which I'm sure we can all agree is extremely touching. But academic communities eager for any shred of evidence that could disprove Christianity seized onto Mead's work as yet more proof that Judeo-Christian values were outdated at best and damaging at worst. But in addition to the revelations that Margaret Mead was in fact attempting to find research to prove that the lifestyle she was already living was in fact better and more healthy, we've also now definitively proven that Margaret Mead's work was a hoax. Interestingly, she set off with conclusions she needed to prove, and then she simply found the information she needed to substantiate those conclusions. She never lived with a single Samoan family. She never learned the language during her entire nine-month stay. Her information on the sexual culture of the Samoans, it turns out, came almost entirely from two young girls. Because Mead, when she was in Samoa, was actually working on several projects at the same time, and she found herself running out of time 
to interview adolescent girls. And so instead, she decided to befriend two of her female Samoan companions and then win their trust and then obtain from them the information on Samoan sexual culture that she needed to produce her book. But because she did not fully understand the culture, she did not realize that by asking the sensitive and explicit questions she was asking, she was actually breaching the Samoan code of etiquette. And the girls responded by engaging in another Samoan custom, which was by playing a practical joke on someone they saw as being very rude. So they responded by playfully feeding Margaret Mead exactly the sort of thing she wanted to hear. Now, Mead, of course, was triumphant, feeling sure that her friendship with these girls had led her to discover the real truth about sexual customs in Samoa, and the girls thought that the joke they had played on the nosy Western anthropologist was hilarious. Little did they realize that their playful joke would end up informing entire fields of academic study in North America with, of course, decidedly unfunny consequences. Now, this probably sounds insane to you, but it's a true story. Uh, when scholar Dr. Derek Freeman decided years later, as anthropologists often do, to follow up on Mead's research and travel to Samoa himself, he found that virtually all of her conclusions about the culture there had been wrong, that Samoans held to a very strict, if not puritanical, code of sexual ethics. There was no South Seas hookup culture. And he even tracked down the two girls that Mead had based her analysis of Samoan sexual practices on. He found these two women, were now or elderly women rather than girls, and asked them about Mead's visit. And they began to quite literally giggle in embarrassment and recounted to Freeman how they had told that white lady such awful lies and stories, not expecting her to believe them. But, of course, they had told me precisely what she wanted to hear, and they had told her what she already believed, which is that there was better ways to live. They said they were sorry that they had misled her. But Meade, at this point, had gained such a titanic status in the academic community that more uh, Freeman was just absolutely completely just like people were after him. He was, he actually had suffered a nervous breakdown at one point because she was attacked. But most people have, have now long been forced to admit that Meade's work on the Samoans was fatally flawed. But unfortunately our culture had already heeded the wishful thinking of Margaret Mead to such a great extent that much of the damage she caused cannot be undone. This takes me to the father of the sexual revolution, a man named Dr. Alfred Kinsey. Uh, he is, as many of you will know, somebody, somebody referred to uh, as a sexologist. He was actually originally a zoologist, most famous for his huge study of gull wasps. And if he had stuck to that, we'd all be better off. But instead, he decided to branch out into the new field of, of quote, sexology. And his resulting work, the Kinsey Reports, is what they were colloquially referred to as uh, 1948's Sexual Behavior in the Human Male and in 1953, a follow-up book called Sexual Behavior in the Human Female. And these books went off with the power of a cultural atom bomb. Uh, within months, it sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And this was, this was an academic book. And it sold an enormous number of copies. But it was the content that fascinated everybody because what Kinsey purported to reveal was that nearly everyone in America was not abiding by the Judeo-Christian strictures on sexuality. And as such, Kinsey had broken this massive conspiracy of silence by exposing the reality of what people in the United States were actually living like. Now, this is still taught as fact. Uh, my professor of American history in my first year at university taught our class that the sexual revolution never happened because Kinsey revealed that everyone had been scandalous hypocrites all along. So no revolution, in other words, was necessary. We just needed somebody like Kinsey to come along and expose this and start talking about it. But 
Just like Margaret Mead, Kinsey, it turns out, had personal reasons from turning from the study of, of wasps to an exploration of sex. And as one writer noted quite recently in the New York Times, quote, Kinsey presented himself to the world as a scientist and a conventional husband and father. It was an essential disguise for a man exploring controversial territory, but he was in fact far more complex. James H. Jones, a historian at the University of Houston, reveals in this rich, awkward biography that Kinsey was energetically bisexual. Jones says, homosexual despite Kinsey's ongoing sexual relationship with his wife and a serious masochist. Kinsey also organized group sex among his senior staff, their spouses, and outside volunteers, which he observed and had filmed, evidently to condition his investigators to their work and bond them together under his paternal authority, as well as to record sexual behavior directly. Now, what did the Kinsey reports say? Now, keep in mind that what I'm about to read you is a summary of work done by someone who presented himself to the public as a boring middle-class square, a WASP Republican who, of course, had no prior agenda and had no real reason to have an agenda. He was simply presenting the facts. And these were the facts, as summarized by author David Kupelian in The Marketing of Evil, quote, Funded by the prestigious Rockefeller Foundation and based on thousands of interviews, Kinsey had discovered that while the American men of the World War II greatest generation pretended to be faithful and monogamous, virtually all of them, 95%, were, according to 1948 law, sex offenders. Specifically, Kinsey claimed that 85% of males had sex prior to marriage, nearly 70% had sex with prostitutes, and 30-45% to 45 of husbands had extramarital affairs. Moreover, from 10 to 37% of men had engaged in homosexual acts, according to Kinsey. In fact, the oft-repeated claim that 1 in 10 human beings is homosexual, a cornerstone of the gay rights movement until it was debunked, came directly from Kinsey's published research. In endless and graphic detail, Kinsey painted a picture of Americans as being amoral sexual animals in search of constant gratification. Even today, in a post-sexual revolution culture, those numbers aren't even close to accurate. In other words, people are still more sexually restrained post-sexual revolution than Alfred Kinsey said they were back in the late 1940s. But there's a further and far more horrifying bias evident in the historical treatment of Kinsey. The media, the scientific community, and the authorities all ignored the fact, and the obvious fact, that Kinsey facilitated the brutal sexual abuse of many children, in his quest to prove that all human beings are sexual from birth until death. This information was not highlighted publicly until scholar Dr. Judith Reisman, who has actually been on this podcast before and just passed away recently, decided to take a look at Kinsey's research on child sexuality, which, by the way, forms the foundation of modern sex education. Her resulting book was Kinsey's Sex and Fraud, and it's so devastating that it requires, as she asks of the reader at the beginning, the suspension of disbelief. Because... Kinsey not only invented and falsified much of his data, he facilitated brutal sex crimes against children by soliciting and encouraging pedophiles both in America and around the world to sexually violate between 317 to 2,035 infants and children for his alleged data on so-called child sexuality. You can, you can take a look at his books, which I have. You can get the copy of the Kinsey Reports, and his graph on child sexual data will still be there. And what happened is that Alfred Kinsey, and trigger warning here, and his companions defined children screaming, thrashing around in pain, and convulsing as a sexual response. They sexually tortured children and recorded those responses as sexual. And this is the data that is the underpinning of our modern sex education.
It's just horrifying that this would have happened. And you can't get that data anymore, by the way. The Kinsey Institute at the University of Indiana, which reportedly exists just to supply researchers with this sort of information, will not allow access to any of the papers regarding child sexuality. And what we have found out now is that most of the reports was just simply trash. Uh, his team forced subjects to give the answers that they wanted to their sex questions. They, they junked three quarters three quarters of their research data and they base their claims about normal males on a roughly 86%, 86% aberrant male population, including 200 sexual psychopaths, 1400 sex offenders and hundreds of prisoners, male prostitutes and promiscuous homosexuals. Moreover, so few normal people would talk to them that the Kinsey team relabeled women who had lived over a year with a man as married and reclassified data on prostitutes and other unconventional women as Susie Homemaker. In other words, the Kinsey team set out with a list of conclusions they wanted to prove, just like Margaret Mead, and they ensured that the final works that they produced to the public said what they wanted them to say. Alfred Kinsey championed the liberation of sex from love, not the liberation of sex, and of course, playing the middle-class boring Republican... He presented his findings to the public and, in response, urged that we abandon all restrictions on sexuality, especially legal restrictions. Why? Well, because if 95%, 95% of American men were technically sex offenders, then what was the point of a law that literally everybody was ignoring, right? What would be the point of a law like that? And, of course, there is none. And so can you imagine for a moment the impact of a generation of people growing up in a very confusing time and realizing and hearing that the vast majority of their parents, their grandparents, despite having taught them Judeo-Christian values, despite having warned them about sex outside of marriage, despite probably having taken them to church. And then according to new studies that came out, they were all lying. They were all hypocrites. Like the psychological impact this had on an upcoming generation when Margaret Mead and her her follow-up acolytes established the idea that according to Mead herself, you could live in happier and healthier ways if you simply abandon sexual strictures. And then Alfred Kinsey comes along with several books and he quote-unquote, proves to the American public that, in fact, everybody's already living like that. And as such, the laws restricting sexual behavior are suffocating, they're cruel, and nobody's following them anyways, which means that people go to jail for getting caught. But the reality is there's no good reason to have any of these rules. No good reason at all. And in fact, Alfred Kinsey, he's been celebrated in a major Hollywood biopic. Uh, he's actually been celebrated... Uh, he, he, it was a documentary, it was, it was not, sorry, not a documentary, it was a Hollywood film, it was called uh, Kinsey, and the guy who plays Alfred Kinsey is Liam Neeson. And so Alfred Kinsey is now considered a hero, even though he lied, his data was total junk, he facilitated the abuse, the sexual abuse, the sexual torture of children, and the Kinsey Institute spent years attempting to keep Dr. Judith Reisman's books away from the public. They tried to blackball her by you know, calling CNN, trying to get interviews canceled. She was just a lovely woman. I, I had the chance to get to know her a bit uh, in, in, in the few years before she died. And she actually started researching Kinsey when, when one of her children was sexually molested by a boy who lived in the same apartment after looking at Playboy. And this takes us to the next stage of the sexual revolution. So you have the mother of the sexual revolution, Margaret Mead, the father of the sexual revolution, Alfred Kinsey. And then you have a man who called himself Kinsey's pamphleteer. 
Kinsey's pamphleteer was Hugh Hefner, who launched Playboy in December of 1953, the first major step in the complete and thorough pornification of our culture. And he directly cites Alfred Kinsey's work saying that, quote, if Kinsey had done the research, I was the pamphleteer spreading the news of sexual liberation through a monthly magazine. Well, of course, this became a self-fulfilling prophecy because he bet, well, if the majority of people are already living sexually liberated lifestyles, but they're just doing it in secret, then there's a lot of money to be made here by people who will buy the magazine. But of course, the human heart is sinful. And pornography is tremendously addictive. So in a self-fulfilling prophecy, pornography rapidly began to overtake the culture. Right? Playboy faced co- uh, competition from Penthouse and Hustler and Screw. All these different magazines would come out and would compete with the original magazine put out by Hefner. Uh, then pornographic novels targeted at women started to come out, like 1972's The Flame and the Flower and 1974 Sweet Savage Love. These were the initiation of the Harlequin romance industry, which produced written pornography for generations of people. And... I want to read you a quote here from uh, David Frum in his book on the 1970s. He used to be a fascinating social researcher. I don't know what happened to him. But anyways, listen to this. As late as 1972, when the National Opinion Research Center first began researching male and female sexual attitudes, a solid majority of American women condemned premarital sex as immoral. Only 20% said that the premarital sex was not wrong at all. Almost twice as many men, 35%, did so. Between 1970 and 1980, those lingering inhibitions flew straight out the window. Feminists like Jermaine Greer champion promiscuity as a means to break women's devotion to men, and the young women of the 1970s listened and obeyed. More than two-thirds of the women who turned 18 between the end of the Korean War and 1961 acknowledged sleeping with only one man as of their 30th birthday, presumably their husband. But between 1972 and 1982, the proportion of American women who fully or conditionally endorsed premarital sex jumped by nearly 20 percentage points to 58% with a fully 36% of women now espousing the ultra permissive view that premarital sex was not wrong at all. And their parents sighed and shrugged their shoulders in 1967, 85% of the parents of college age young people condemned premarital sex as morally wrong by 1979, almost 37% of parents still held out against the trend of the times. Those numbers of course have not improved at all. And you have a number of things happening at the same time, right? Of course, in the mid sixties, you have the FDA's approval of the birth control pill, just as sexual liberation was starting to enter the mainstream. And as such, people suddenly saw sex as being completely un- unharnessed from procreation. Of course, you can't entirely enjoy, avoid making babies doing the making baby act. And as such, abortion was brought in right on schedule as a backstop when contraception failed or the pill failed. And so what we ended up happening was see happening as first contraception falling closely behind it was abortion and the resulting society was almost entirely transformed over the two generations that followed that. Of course, with pornography, it has conquered the culture to a staggering extent. Um, On Pornhub alone in 2016, if you take the hours of pornography watched on the sites owned by Pornhub, add those into days, take the days and add those into weeks, and take the weeks and add those into months and the months into years, you have 524,641 years of pornography just watched on the sites owned by Pornhub in the 12 months of 2016 alone. That's roughly 12 porn videos for every man, woman, and child on planet Earth. When the sexual revolution went digital, it took over everything. So this is obviously a very short chronology, but 
I want to mention here that there was a, a backlash to the permissive society, to the sexual revolution that started primarily in, in the 1980s. Uh, we see the rise of, of, of conservative leaders. You have, you know, Ronald Reagan famously, um, who, who was elected by evangelicals. You have Margaret Thatcher in, in, in Great Britain. You have uh, anti-porn campaigners getting some key legislation passed in the 80s in the UK, uh, led by people like Mary Whitehouse who has the absolute, absolutely phenomenal moniker, the avenging angel of Middle England. She campaigned against you know, pornography and blasphemy and the sexually permissive society for her entire life. And then in the U.S., you have her equivalent, Phyllis Schlafly, who, with her legions of housewives, defeated the Equal Rights Amendment and stopped the feminists cold in their tracks, which just a fascinating story. There's a great book called The Sweetheart of the Silent Majority, about Phyllis Schlafly that I highly recommend to anybody who's interested in that history. You also have the pro-life movement really coming of age in the 1980s. You've got the, the rescue movement outside abortion clinics across the U.S. And there's this real pushback against pornography that seems to be successful because pornography is a physical thing. It's a, it's a VHS cassette. It's a magazine. And you could restrict the sale of these things. But once pornography went online, all of the progress made in the 1980s essentially evaporated overnight. And we are now living with the consequences of a thoroughly pornified society. And so this is, of course, a very simplified version of, of how we got from there to here. The mother of the sexual revolution, the father of the sexual revolution, the rise of pornography, you know, abortion, you have contraception leading to the contraceptive lifestyle. And then as such, you have an enormous, enormous number of STDs. Uh, it's really interesting. If you look at the st both Stats Canada and the Center for Disease Control numbers on rates of sexually transmitted diseases, I'm always stunned our government hasn't declared that a pandemic um, because it definitely calls for some social distancing. And uh, people would be a lot healthier and ultimately a lot happier if they if they took care to avoid a lot of the behaviors that are being openly promoted in our schools. And so this is how in only 50, 60 years, we went from a culture rooted in revelation, the revolution, uh, revelation of God's word, the revelations of natural law, to revolution, which is a total overthrow of all morals and values that had underpinned our society till then. We see the absolute transformation of the natural family, uh, the rise of, of, of the LGBT movement as more and more uh, sexual practices are claimed as rights and as liberties rather than as behaviors. And now we, we see a society that is so fully aligned behind the revolution that we see our legal apparatuses, our courts, our government, aligning itself behind the premises of a movement that is, that is very new. If you consider how fast the transgender revolution happened, it's really staggering to consider. Uh, when I wrote my book, uh, The Culture War, in 2016, in my chapter on the rise of the LGBT movement, I had a couple of paragraphs kind of explaining what the trans movement was and what transgenderism is and distinguishing it from, um, you know, transvitism. But in the couple of years since then, the transgender movement has seen nearly all of its fundamental dogmas actually enshrined into law, certainly in Canada, in many places in the U.S. and in many places across Europe. We are starting to see a pushback to the tenets of the transgender ideology because of its manifest and obvious harms to children. But we have to consider the fact that in less than a decade, this movement took almost all of the cultural territory that it took a half century for the gay rights movement to achieve. It's really staggering to consider. Now, because I want to uh, end this on, on somewhat of a more positive note, after having given you a pretty grim summary of the sexual revolution, I just want to point out that if Roe v. Wade is to fall, if Roe v. Wade does ultimately come down 
next month during Pride Month. I think that the message that it sends is that what has been done can be undone. What has been chosen can be unchosen. Uh, the psychological blow that this will, will will give to the sexual revolutionaries, I think, is unprecedented, which is why they're so panicked. And we we can we can hope and pray not only that that millions of babies will be saved from a horrific death, but also that the, the fall of Roe will be seen perhaps perhaps as the beginning of something new. Maybe maybe the beginning of a backlash to the sexual revolution that this time will take us back to some semblance of sanity. Who can tell? Who can tell? Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I hope that this summary, which I've tried to keep very simple and very uh, very chronological, will be helpful in listening to the show further on and maybe contextualize some of the other interviews that we've had. Uh, those of you who want to hear other uh, lectures on, on the sexual revolution, I did a great interview on this podcast with Mary Aberstadt, where she explains how the sexual revolution contributed to identity politics that I would recommend checking out. And as always, if you want to subscribe to this podcast, go to lightsightnews.com, head over to the podcast button, and you can find our shows wherever you get your content. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week.